You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1880th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 26th of May 2022. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley, the producer is Pat Needham and your readers are Val Fletcher and myself, Graham Parley. I should also like to mention our processing teams who do work very hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And what we're going to start off with is headlines. So my first one is, call for judicial review of plans for harmful substations. Mildenhall Hub wins prestigious national award for architecture. Council seeking to tackle pollution after damning report. Disappointment for Ipswich as Colchester is granted city status. Call for judicial review of plans for harmful substations. Campaigners are seeking a judicial review into the construction of two eight-acre substations near a Suffolk village as part of an offshore wind farm project. Substation Action Save East Suffolk, SASIS, Fears plans to create the substations at Friston will have a harmful impact on the village and the surrounding countryside. The infrastructure is part of the development of East Anglia 1 North and East Anglia 2 Off the Suffolk coast and will receive electricity generated by these wind farms. Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng has given the go-ahead for Scottish Power Renewables proposals, which could generate 1,600 megawatts of electricity, enough to power 1.2 million homes. But SACES and other campaign groups say an electricity platform should be created offshore and the power delivered by cable to where it is needed. There are six main grounds for the judicial review, including flood risk and heritage impact, noise impact, the cumulative effect of five energy projects connecting at Friston, and the failure to adequately consider alternative sites. A spokesman for SACES said, SACES strongly supports offshore wind and has only taken this action due to the deep flaws in the onshore aspects of these projects and the associated decision-making. Suffolk Coastal MP Teresa Coffey has also met Mr Quarteng to seek assurances that future applications undergo a rigorous site selection process and that cumulative impact is taken into consideration. The government is set to announce new national energy guidelines which will oblige applicants to demonstrate that they have chosen the best locations for substations and that they have considered the cumulative impact of that choice. However, these new policies are too late for the Friston decision 
which will only be changed if the judicial review proves successful. Speaking about the meeting, Ms Coffey said, I also pressed upon him the need for National Grid to be upfront with the locations that they've already offered onshore connections to. I am furious that despite raising it several years ago, they haven't yet looked into my suggested alternative at Bradwell in Essex, the site of a disused nuclear power station. I have asked the Secretary of State to consider this. With Sizewell B, the prospect of Sizewell C and large amounts of North Sea wind and power coming ashore in the county, I'm concerned from an environmental and energy security point of view that too much onshore energy infrastructure is being concentrated into our small bit of Suffolk. I'm determined to try and change this. A West Suffolk building has won a prestigious National Architecture Award. Mildon Hall Hub was named as one of the winners in the East of England at the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors Awards. That's RICS for short. Along with four other winners in the region, the Mildon Hall Hub was judged across five categories, including community benefit, commercial development, public sector, refurbishment revitalisation and residential. Having won the regional award, Mildon Hall Hub has now been shortlisted for the national awards, taking place in October, and will compete at the National Ricks Awards Grand Final. The West Suffolk building was constructed to replace outdated facilities with a modern multi-million community hub which combines education, health, leisure, blue light and community facilities under one roof. It opened for the first time last year after a £39 million investment. In addition to providing improved facilities for the residents and wider community of Mildenhall and surrounding villages, the hub demonstrates the benefits of having shared facilities on one site. Mildenhall Hub has reduced overheads and created better cost and environmental efficiencies. This unique project has regenerated the area by supporting the growth of businesses, providing employment opportunities and attracting people who are keen to use the fantastic facilities. The RICS Awards showcase the most inspirational initiatives and developments in land, real estate, construction and infrastructure. They recognise outstanding achievement, teamwork and companies. Jonathan Nelson, chair of the judging panel, said these winning projects are a true testament to the hard work of property professionals in the east of England. The pandemic has led to the industry facing much uncertainty and challenging conditions, but we were delighted and very proud to see such innovative building projects appearing across our cities and towns. The teams behind them have worked tirelessly and with incredible vision to create projects which provide tremendous benefits across a diverse range of areas. Through collaborating with other professionals, local surveyors have shown that they have the talent to deliver exemplary and in many cases world-class built projects. 
The RICS is elated to recognise skills and dedication that the teams behind these projects had in ensuring successful delivery and making a positive impact across the east of England. Council seeking to tackle pollution after damming report. Council chiefs have vowed to look into doing more to tackle river pollution. After report found all of the county's waterways failed to meet standards. Suffolk County Council unanimously passed a motion committing to a series of measures one week after a report by Essex and Suffolk Rivers Trust found that none of the county's rivers met either government or water framework directive standards for pollution. The motion said the council will write to MPs and DEFRA to ask what more can be done to work with county farm tenants and the wider agricultural sector ensuring good practice that doesn't pollute waters and investigate further biodiversity efforts to address pollution, polluting runoff from roads. Councillor Penny Otten from the Green Liberal Democrat and Independent Group who put forward the motion said Quite frankly, it's a national disgrace. In the 21st century, we should not have rivers in Suffolk or even the rest of the country where people feel it is not safe to go and swim, to paddleboard, to kayak or to do fishing. We believe that it is time serious action is taken place from all of the authorities that are in charge of our rivers and lakes. If we don't deal with it, we could end up with sewage discharges into our rivers by 2040. Water quality is done by the Environment Agency and Anglian Water as suppliers, and a meeting of Suffolk's Flood Risk Management Board earlier this week heard about the measures to monitor and tackle river pollution. However, the Environment Agency funding has dropped by 63% since 2009, which has impacted its ability to monitor and deal with sewage discharges. Angling Water also has the legacy problem of historic combined storm overflows, which are not a modern solution to dealing with sewage. The meeting also heard that agricultural sources were as much of a contributor as sewage discharges, while runoff from roads, modifications of watercourses and historic land uses also had an impact. Councillor Richard Wright, Conservative Cabinet Member for the Environment and Finance said, I am pleased that this motion not only recognises the importance of rivers to Suffolk residents, the vital role rivers play in our complex biodiversity networks, and how much work still lies ahead in improving their health. But very importantly, also commits us to continue to support and engage with other organisations as we have done to date and to great effect. Colchester has been granted city status as part of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee Civic Honours fueling disappointment among some people at Ipswich's decision to not bid at all. Colchester is Britain's first recorded settlement and its first capital and joins seven other places to receive the status. Ipswich did not proceed with an application for city status with the bid scrapped in June last year. 
The town has bid for the honour many times before over the last 30 years and Borough Council leader David Ellesmere believed it was right to seek to become Suffolk's first city this time around. Ipswich MP Tom Hunt didn't believe the time was right and said at the time, I can see both sides of the argument and could well see a time in the future where we could really unite together as a community to push for city status. I just don't see now as being that time. We don't need to be a city to achieve what we want to achieve and just because we're not a city it doesn't mean we're a lesser place to say Norwich or Chelmsford. Of course I'd argue we're a far better place. Reacting to the news that Colchester had won city status Chairman of Ipswich Central, Terry Baxter, said It's disappointing in consequence after Ipswich didn't go for city status and another illustration of the need for all parties who have an interest in promoting our town to work together because without it we fail to benefit. Ipswich is to all intents and purposes a city in its own right so to miss out on this opportunity is just further disappointment for our town. As a city, Colchester can expect a boost to the local community, an opening up of new opportunities for people, according to the Cabinet Office. Colchester MP Will Quince said, I am absolutely delighted that the UK's first Roman city has become the UK's newest city as part of Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. City status will mean that our dynamic economy, nationally recognised award-winning cultural and heritage assets and internationally renowned university, can reach new heights. We can all share pride in this honour. Colchester High Steward and the town's former MP, Sir Bob Russell, said... Colchester is no longer wrongly labelled as Britain's oldest recorded town. We have regained the title of Britain's first city, established in AD 49 by the Emperor Claudius, when at the same time he made Colchester the first capital of Roman Britain. Stanley in the Falkland Islands, Douglas on the Isle of Man, Bangor in Northern Ireland, Doncaster, Milton Keynes, Dunfermline and Wrexham have also been granted city status. And I have to just add that there is a photograph here of Colchester with the MP with a smile on the face. He looks like the cat who's caught the cream. <laughs> a new curator has been appointed to help expand the appeal of an historic Suffolk landmark. Dr Amy Barnes will be joining the team at the Tide Mill in Woodbridge, which is a rare example of a mill with a water wheel that still turns and is capable of grinding flour. She received a PhD in Museum Studies from the University of Leicester in 2010 and has experience of working in curatorial, curatorial roles and on exhibition and interpretation projects. She is currently a lecturer in art history at the Open University under Chairman John Carrington. The Grade 1 listed mill is expanding its appeal to museum goers through improved communication for both physical and online visitors 
as well as widening its accessibility to younger visitors. Mr Carrington said, I'm delighted to welcome Amy to the team and excited about what she can contribute. Amy joins at a time when the mill has recognised that it must embrace as wide an audience as possible. This means adding new displays and organising history, engineering and milling related content to stay fresh. We have more ways to communicate what we have and what we do these days with video screens showing the machinery in action all the time, offering a visual experience of all three floors to those that can't progress beyond the ground floor. Milling demonstrations, group visits, local group presentations and offering sensory packs for youngsters. We will continue to build our online content by posting these activities where practicable through our website and social media. A mill has been operating at the site for 850 years and was operated by the local Augustinian Priory in the Middle Ages before being acquired by Henry VIII during the dissolution of the monasteries in 1536. The mill was one of only a handful still operating by the Second World War and it was opened to the public in 1973. A landlord hit with fines for parking outside his Bury St Edmunds pub during lockdown has been visited by bailiffs demanding £957. Gordon Graham Hall of the Rosencrown in Whiting Street received parking fines during the first lockdown in May, June and July 2020 when he parked outside the pub while its garden was redeveloped. His appeal was unsuccessful and he thought the case would be heard at tribunal. However, he has been visited by a debt enforcement agency. The cost of the fines, which would have been £35 each if paid within 14 days, has soared to £957, with the enforcement firm demanding payment or items to that value. Gordon said, although he had a residence parking permit, Due to the lockdown and people staying at home, there were no spaces available in oversubscribed Zone D, while several spaces were blocked by skips and scaffolding. I wanted this case to be heard so all the mitigating circumstances could be considered. Unfortunately, all that has happened is the fines are passed to a debt collection agency and costs have been added, said Gordon. This is a scandalous way for the council to behave. I had to park outside the pub because I was developing the garden during lockdown. I was running backwards and forwards with stuff. I really am at my wit's end. A spokesperson for West Suffolk Council said it recognised the challenges, so had made parking in its car parks free to permit holders during lockdown, while anyone who felt they had been incorrectly issued a fine could follow a three-step appeals process. We note the resident only followed the first stage of appeal in two out of the nine cases. If no payment is received or correspondence answered, ultimately, cases will be registered as a debt and passed to debt enforcement for recovery, added the spokesperson. 
The Suffolk Torch Rickshaw Relay, celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, arrived in Newmarket on Friday, the day it started its 580-mile journey visiting to 250 villages and towns across the county. Town Mayor Councillor Michael Jeffries and former GB duathlete Dave Peck carried the torch down the high street to the Memorial Hall after it had begun its journey earlier in the day at Brandon. From there, it travelled to Lakenheath, Holywell Row, Mildenhall, Barton Mills, Wellington and Red Lodge before arrived in Newmarket. On Saturday, the relay headed to the Rowley Mile Racecourse, where it was carried by town resident and Grand National hero Bob Champion who was greeted in the winner's enclosure by jockey James Doyle, victorious in both the 1,000 and 2,000 guineas at the course earlier in the month. It is a great honour to be part of this, said Bob. I was only asked a few days ago, and I felt like a great thing to do for Suffolk, and as part of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Racing has been part of my life for a long time, and it is fantastic to do the torch relay leg here. We all know the Queen adores anything related to horse racing, so stopping here for a race day is perfect and is great for the county. Everything about today has been special. From the Rowley Mile to the torch heading off to Moulton and Gaisley before making its way towards Bury St Edmunds, it will finish its journey at the Suffolk Show in Ipswich on June the 1st. Exning St Martin's Church will be the starting and finishing point for a special walk following an ancient tradition on Saturday. Walkers will be beating the bounds of three local parishes, Exning with Landwade, St Mary's in Newmarket and St Agnes by following a route covering just over 13 miles. It follows a centuries-old tradition when local people would gather to walk the parish boundaries during Rogation Week, when the parish priest, church wardens and parish officials would lead a group of local boys as witnesses beating the boundary markers with sticks. The walk will start at 10.30am and should be complete by around 4.30pm. One of the organisers, Canon Mark Hayworth, said... We hope participants might be willing to be sponsored for the work of Christian Aid, but this is, of course, optional. Members of Newmarket Joggers will help to mark the route for those participating. And now we're going to move on to read some letters. And my first letter is from Margaret Schultz of Bury St Edmunds. Hospital design is not a thing of beauty. Some of the criticisms being voiced about West Suffolk's Hospital Trust's outline planning application for the new hospital on the Hardwick Manor site show grave concerns about the height and outline design of the buildings and the domination of the rural setting. The plans claim to make their, take their inspiration from the new Dumfries and Galloway Royal Infirmary built in 2017, with low-rise buildings which are designed to have a low visual impact on the surrounding countryside. 
From the online images available, it seems that this approach has worked well amongst the low hills and rural landscapes of Galloway, which I know well and with which I have family connections. However, we now learn from the West Suffolk Hospital Trust plans that the new buildings will be up to 33 metres high, which is more than three times the height of the main building to the existing hospital, and in stark contrast to the low-rise Dumfries and Galloway design. In the Dumfries and Galloway case, the concept of the three arms, which are to accommodate the wards, do have a form of elegance, which are set off by the low-rise design of the hospital and the monopitched roofs, thus resulting in a good sense of overall proportion and pleasant presentation. The development sits well in its rural environment. In contrast, replicating the idea of the arms into a 33-metre-high flat roof building with plant rooms on top, along with the 27-metre-high support buildings behind, as proposed in the Hardwick Manor case, will destroy this elegance and make the whole appearance look contrived, ungainly and overweight, and will emphasise the enormous mass and height of the buildings. A thing of beauty it will not be. Also, on the matter of traffic congestion, it is noticeable that access to the new Dumfries and Galloway Hospital has clearly been directed from the main trunk road in south-west Scotland, the A75, without the need to go through Dumfries itself. A new West Suffolk hospital would be better sited with an easier access route off the A14 at Westley or Ruffham, without adding to the already clogged traffic in Bury, which will be further exacerbated by all the proposed new buildings in the area. And that was from Margaret Schultz of Bury St Edmunds. My first letter is from Andrew Phillips, OBE, and he's Lord Phillips of Sudbury. And he's writing about Sudbury. So many things are, are already on the boil in the town and district that I hesitate to raise another. But the inadequacy of traffic arrangements in our town is scandalously worsening. So much so that it discourages use of the town centre, its shops and facilities, not to mention tourists and visitors. Take, for example, Burkitt's Lane, which leads from Acton Square to the bottom of Market Hill. It is a much-used road, acting as a shortcut through this part of the town centre. But the pavements on both sides of the lane are so defective that I always walk on the well-maintained road surface, hopping onto the pavement when a vehicle passes. The pavement surfaces are trip-inducing, uneven and badly slanted on the west side of the lane. On the east side, they rise up and down to facilitate vehicular access to the parallel modern terrace they abut. All this discourages pedestrian use of the lane, as do comparably defective pavements in several other parts of the town. On top of this, the ludicrous speedways which so many of the roads through the town have become bring about further discouragement to pedestrians. 
all of which surely has a hugely negative effect on the attractiveness of our beautiful historic town, aptly described by poet historian John Betjeman as one of the finest in England. Thus, we are failing abysmally to protect it. Day after day, one has to experience the convoys of huge lorries, cars and motorbikes thundering their way through town. We don't even impose, as many towns do, a 20 mile per hour limit with effective speed cameras. What's wrong with us? Finally, anyone who cares about this issue should please make their views known to a town or district councillor, our MP or a local official. Don't leave it to someone else or underestimate the impact of individual objections. And my letter is from Sid Broughton, Chairman, Retired. Sadness at Closure Farming Club. In 1942-43, the nation was at war and the government of the day felt that there was a need for farmers to group together to help with the provision of food for the population of this island. Farmers should share knowledge, skills and equipment and to include workers since most young men were needed to join the forces. Locally, this brought about the formation of the Stanleyfield and District Farmers Club. Encouraged by the possibility of a few extra petrol coupons, this further encouraged the club to include farm workers, students from Chadaka Farming College and other young farmers clubs were added, and of course other villagers felt it necessary to harvest at harvest times to increase the labour force. This effort was quite successful in that it brought people together and to help share life's problems. This encouraged a more social lifestyle new to the isolation that occurred with well-scattered small farms. The club then served a place where conversation and friendships developed. Regular meetings to listen to visiting speakers, to have quizzes, organise dinners and perhaps more importantly, hold competitions to determine who was most successful with particular crops. Trophies were awarded. Additionally, trips usually related to farming were organised. Many members enjoyed trips abroad to visit equipment manufacturers and farming shows. Members also visited cattle-related units not so common in Suffolk. All of this called for enthusiasm among the members to act as organisers. As our world gets smaller, with introduction of radio and television, there is less enthusiasm to turn out, resulting in reduced attendance at club nights. The reduced membership today, coupled with more pressure to follow rules set by law, how meetings should be conducted, has caused a rethink, which has resulted in the club closing down. A ballot of the remaining few resulted in the closure of the club. Assets will be dispersed charitably. A sad day. Uh, letter from Elizabeth Peabody, who lives in Exning Road, Newmarket. I would like, through your columns, to congratulate Newmarket Town Council for the wonderful floral displays around the town, in St Mary's Square, 
in the High Street close to the cemetery and the Queen statue in Exning Road and along the Yellow Brick Road where residents joined councillors last autumn in a community plant of spring bulbs. Golden daffodils have been followed by rich purple globe-headed alliums which not only look a picture but are great for our bee population. Unfortunately, last week in Exning Road I walked behind a mother who thought it was okay to encourage her two small children to each pick themselves an allium head. I pointed out, politely, that the flowers were there for us all to enjoy and would bloom well into the summer. She didn't appear to understand and the children toddled off with their floral trophies which no doubt would have been thrown away as soon as they got home. We all have a responsibility for how our town looks and that includes not dropping litter, picking up other people's and disposing of it, not picking or driving our cars on flowers planted to make areas of the town look better and even keeping the areas round our homes tidy. So many people are quick to take to social media or to the letters columns of this newspaper to complain about how the town looks. To words in words akin to those uttered by JFK, ask not what your town can do for you, ask what you can do for your town. And this email, uh, sorry, this letter is from Dan Pipe, but it's via email. These trees need to be protected. I look with concern at the fields ring-fenced ready for development on Rushbrook Lane and wonder what the immediate future holds for the 50 or so mature trees around the periphery of the site. There are many mature oak, chestnut and sycamore trees along the lane and many more visible at a distance over what are currently fields. I am concerned they face the chop once the development gets underway. Recent history in Thurston has suggested that it may certainly be the case. Here hedgerows and 300-year-old oak trees were removed despite being on development plans and featuring in the glossy brochure given to prospective house purchasers. At a time of climate crisis, I petition West Suffolk Council to, proper, to properly protect these trees with tree protection orders. It is simply not enough to say that they will be replaced. How can a 300-year-old oak tree be replaced in any meaningful way? There must be a method whereby sensitive developments can occur that builds good quality houses while simultaneously protecting the local environment. It shouldn't have to be one or another. The slightly older development of Mouse Lane, Ruffham, perhaps shows how houses can be built alongside ancient trees. John Ellison is Secretary, West Suffolk Trades Council, and he writes, If we are returning to a more normal lifestyle after the pandemic has done its worst, we are doing so against the backdrop that, before Covid appeared on the scene, our NHS was in a dire situation. It is now in a worse one. In 2015, former Conservative Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt promised to hire 5,000 more GPs within five years. 
the reality is that numbers have gone down, not up. Before the pandemic, inadequate funding since 2010, plus unnecessary and costly privatisation, had already taken a severe toll on the service. We now have as many as 100,000 NHS staff vacancies and more than 6 million patients awaiting overdue and much-needed treatment. In Suffolk, as elsewhere, the huge decline of face-to-face -face GP appointments in favour of phone appointments risks errors of diagnosis and treatment, while West Suffolk Hospital, in dealing with a backlog, can offer no more than an aim to treat 4% more patients over this coming year than prior to COVID. It also faces the expectation that it will be £15 million worse off next year than now. Our ambulance service is another sufferer from a shortfall in funding, as average waits for an ambulance are longer than ever before. Our NHS dental service has mostly disappeared and must be brought back to life. At the moment, our NHS is like a skeleton of what it was more than a decade ago. For it to be fleshed out, a pay rise of at least 15% is urgently needed to recruit and retain nursing and associated staff. To support NHS staff in and away from West Suffolk Hospital and to ask for better from our government, local trade unionists plan to be pre present alongside the hospital at lunchtime on Tuesday. Well, interestingly enough, Val, I've got a, a nice positive letter oh, here, good. Uh, <laughs> which is, thank you for helping me. On the evening of May the 3rd, while attending a Bury under-23s football match with my granddaughter, her boyfriend was playing. I tripped and had a nasty fall while approaching the main stand. I would like to thank all the people involved in the order events took place. Firstly, the people in the stand for their help and concern. Next, to someone who rarely gets praise, the referee, for halting the game. This action enabled Jimmy, the Bury physio, to cross the pitch promptly and him and his colleagues to attend to me quicker. Thanks to Jimmy for taking me to A&E. A big thank you to all the hospital staff, how hard they work and to treat every patient as if they are the only one. How lucky we are to have such a wonderful hospital in this area. They treated me for facial and other minor injuries. Thanks again to everyone involved. That was nice. Yes, it was. Um, my next letter is from Samara Barnes. She's a National Programme Manager for Bernardo's Education Community. Children have had much to deal with throughout the pandemic and that's much reflect, been reflected in the increasing number of children showing signs of anxiety and other mental health issues. Recent images of the war in Ukraine have added to many young people's concerns and some schools are preparing to welcome Ukrainian refugees into their classrooms. Children who will bring with them considerable trauma after being forced to flee their homeland. Bernardo's, the UK's largest children's charity, has created a website where teachers can get advice on supporting children and young people through trauma, grief, 
loss and bereavement. Although the Bernardo's education community is aimed at teaching professionals from early years to university, many of the resources are also available to parents who want to know how to help their own children through difficult times. That might be the separation or divorce of parents, exam stress, staying safe online or making memories to remember a family member who has died. There are general tips on talking about war and conflict or fears exacerbated by the pandemic, such as family poverty. Effective ways of tackling difficult subjects with children with autism or other additional needs are also to be found on the website. The Bernardo's education community recognises that teaching professionals are facing significant challenges themselves. So the website also includes resources to promote staff well-being. Educators can network to share ideas and there are podcasts and monthly training sessions on subjects such as the effect of trauma on health and the approach to death and mourning in different cultures. The Bernardo's education community is a completely free resource. Whether you are a teaching professional or a parent, we hope you will find it a source of advice and support during these difficult times. Uh, I seem to have a bit of the letters that have got a bit of a thing about road signs at the moment. And this one is um, Bob Hogger of Halesworth. Appalling state of road signs. Sir, I was pleased to see my letter, East Anglian Daily Times, May the 17th, where I referred to the appalling state of the fallen road signs throughout Suffolk. The photograph I took recently illustrates this very clearly. And in the photograph, uh, kind of lost in the cow parsley side of the road, is a signpost, Framlingham, I and a couple of other things I can't actually see because they're covered by the vegetation. And I'm sorry, Val, I'm going to go on to do my next uh, letter, which is linked, really. Yes. Clean signs for Queen. Janet Douglas, Framlingham. Sir, quite correct that we must be encouraged to clean for the Queen. East Anglian Daily Time letters, May the 17th. But I ask, can people clean road signs? Many are so dirty you can hardly read what they say and know where you are going. And that was Janet Douglas Franlingham. Absolutely right. Yep. <laughs> now, totally different. Anthony Graham writes via email. It's heartbreaking to see the vast swathes of countryside which are currently disappearing to make way for housing estates. These are productive fields, wildlife habitats and simply joyous green spaces that will never get back. The edge of every city, town and village seems to be creeping inexorably outwards to meet the seemingly inexhaustible demand for housing. Exning will no doubt soon join up with Burwell to create one giant housing estate, the bland new homes swallowing up what were once characterful, charming villages. Fordham expands at pace. Soham, Ely, grow exponentially. Kennet is soon to get a garden village. It'll be interesting to see how the planners interpret lower density. 
Nowhere, it seems, is safe from the developer's bulldozer. We just have to hope that the infrastructure, schools, doctors, traffic management, keeps up. Otherwise, the enjoyment of our lovely new homes will be somewhat tainted by a rather poorer quality of life. Right, I've got quite a long letter next, and this is from Jim Mitchell of Carlton Colville. Teenagers to drive lorries. Sir, Theresa Coffey, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions and Suffolk Coastal MP, has reportedly suggested that teenagers could be allowed to drive lorries and minibuses. These proposals are said to be being promoted by government ministers to deal with a critical shortage of commercial drivers. This controversial proposal would change the current European Union standards adopted 25 years ago that limits types of vehicles newly qualified drivers can operate on UK roads. However, some Whitehall officials are said to be concerned that allowing young inexperienced drivers behind the wheel of larger, heavier and more powerful vehicles could prompt a backlash from long-established road safety campaigners. The reason for the proposal is said to be that it would widen the pool of potential drivers available to, say, supermarkets and delivery businesses. The reality is that the UK is short of 100,000 lorry and heavy goods drivers, according to estimates affecting road freight, especially regarding food and fuel. Until 1997, British drivers automatically obtained licence categories enabling them to drive heavier motor vehicles up to 7.5 tonnes. When they passed a driving test, this ended with the UK adopted new EU licence categories and new drivers had to undergo additional tests in order to drive heavier motor vehicles. The Department of Transport is reportedly looking at making this change as part of the so-called Brexit Freedoms Bill, included in the Queen's speech. Legislation being drawn up by Jacob Rees-Mogg Minister for Brexit Opportunities, proposes to ditch up to £1 billion of red tape, much of it acquired during the UK's 47-year membership of the European Union. But a number of reputable businesses will be aware that the handing over of the keys of a 7.5 tonne lorry to a newly qualified driver is not as simple as it sounds. Significant and meaningful training will have to be required and successfully undertaken. Small trucks are fitted with more safety equipment than ever before. Driving these types of vehicles is an onerous responsibility and safety should not be compromised. Road deaths in the UK have fallen significantly in recent decades, which transport transport consultants ascribe to tougher and more stringent application of rules and regulations. With one road death anywhere being one road fatality too many, according to the European Transport Safety Council, 1,580 people lost their lives on Britain's roads in 2020. These tragic statistics 
were down by 14% compared with 2010. However, the question is, will road safety be compromised by the promotion of teenagers driving heavier motor vehicles on UK roads? Ellie Robinson from Sudbury writes, When posting a parcel in Sudbury Post Office, I asked what was going to happen to our only post office now that the WH Smith shop, where it's been sidelined for the past few years, is to close. One of the very helpful assistants told me that it was to close on June the 9th and that they were all going to be made redundant. End of post office services in Sudbury. Is this another example of the way the post office treats its employees? What can we do to prevent yet another loss of public services? Right, now I've got a confession to make here, Val. Uh, when I was going through selecting items for uh, tonight, uh, I had selected a longer article on the post office closure in Sudbury. And when I was checking through the uh, items, I noticed that at the end of the first page, it said continued on page two, which I had managed to throw away. Oh. <laughs> so uh, what I can see is, in addition to your letter that you got there, yeah. that the council are actually looking for an alternative site for the post office. So even though the poor people of Sudbury have to go to Long Melford, um, for the post office when this one closes, uh, hopefully it won't be a long wait before they get one back in Sudbury. In Sudbury itself. It's yeah. a big enough town to warrant. I know, it's quite shocking really. Isn't it? Uh, so it's me. It yes. <laughs> and this is from Brian Wilcox, Willisham. And the first cuckoo. So, sitting in my garden at 6.30pm on Tuesday, May the 17th, I could hear in the distance a cuckoo calling in Bonnie Wood of Barking Tye and Willisham Tye. Is this the first one heard this year in Suffolk? Why do they come all that way from Africa? Perhaps a sign that it is not just in the world just yet. I heard a cuckoo a fortnight ago in Hengrave. Oh, hold on. Wait, that just one, that, one. that might be before this chat. Might have been just one cuckoo. That's enough. <laughs> now, Neil Lanham from Bottisdale. He writes, In reply to Norman Castleton's letter in the East Anglian Daily Times of May the 17th, asking how to make a lunch for 30 pence, I would suggest that we need to go back to educating people in frugality as a way of life, and that it is this attitude that is the important thing that is now missing. Having been born in 1938 and losing my father in 1943, the brunt of our monetary shortfall fell on my mother, Ruby, but as an old Suffolk gal who had helped to, helped to hold onto her father's small farm against the threatening agricultural depression, she was well versed in what and when to scrimp. With a mere 18 shillings, that is 90 pence now, but now worth about six pounds in reality. A week from the Widows and Orphans Fund that was the only handout available. For herself and two children, she sold all our best furniture in exchange for cheaper in the local auction. Then we lived off all the off-ration meat cuts, tripe and onions, stuffed sheep's heart, liver, kidneys, boiled batter puddings, 
chidlings, that's pig's intestines, if listeners don't know. Pork cheese, soused herring, pork hock, boiled in soaked marrow fat. Peas made with a thick piece, made a thick piece soup that stood on the stove for three days. She knew all the odd-shaped cuts of meat, such as cheap breast of mutton, which she would roll and bind. I remember receiving a phone call in Cambridge, where I was apprenticed, to go to Sainsbury's to buy Argentine rib of beef at seven pence a pound and take home on the train. Frugality was like a sport, experiencing great satisfaction out of saving, and that attitude is all. At the council school that I started at in 1943, if you had an apple, kids would come up and say, Bagsy the core. At home, we did not buy cornflakes for breakfast, but had kettle broth, which is stale bread with hot water drained off, then either milk and sugar, or a knob of butter and salt and pepper. It is lovely, and I have some every Christmas morning or we would have half a cold pig's trotter. I have never ate steak until I was 21, and, like the lack of bananas during the war, we still had contentment as we had no experience of what we were missing. Mother would not buy ham cut on a slicer, but waited until the piece got to the shank and an odd shape. Then she would offer the butcher 12 and a half pence, well, half a crown, they loved her for it. There was no TV then, and murders were noticeably less frequent. All clothes were hand-me-downs, and when duffel coats came in fashion, Mother Ruby bought second-hand army blankets and made them herself. We never went short. When I got to a posh school, where plain grey was only worn, she bought a second-hand D-mob suit for a pound. It had pinstripes and padded shoulders. An embarrassment? Never. By then I had learned the value of a pound and to duck and weave, which I feel was as good an education as any. Well. Blimey, right. Well, that's, <laughs> and, and that's he's a bit of an eye opener. Notice he's written this letter, which means he's still alive. Yeah. And he was born in 1938, so didn't do him any harm, did it? No. <laughs> wow. Well, um... I always like to throw something different in, and uh, this one uh, is, there was a much larger article, I have to say, and it was too big, so I've just taken a small section from it, and this is about a chap who collects WCs, and it's called Flushing Facts. <laughs> so I'm just going to give you the facts of, the historical facts of WCs, not, not all about his collection. Um, as long ago as 2,500 years BC, the people of Harappa in India had waterborne toilets that were linked with drains. Flushing first appeared in Crete about 4,000 years ago. Rainwater caught in rooftop pans was used to wash away via waste pipes. Ancient Egypt, China and Roman Empire were also sanitation pioneers. Thomas Crapper is widely credited with inventing the flush toilet in the 1860s. But while he made improvements to the design, others got there first. In 1592, Sir John Harrington, godson of Elizabeth I, invented a water closet with a raised cistern and a small downpipe through which water ran to flush the waste. 
but the idea never caught on. In 1775, Alexander Cummings developed the S-shaped pipe under the toilet basin to keep out foul odours. In 1884, a best flush competition held in London was won by the pedestal vase that had been designed by George Jennings, 1810-1882. Here we go. It's flush removed ten apples, a flat sponge, plumber's smudge spread over the inside edges of the pan and four pieces of paper sticking closely to the inner surface. There you go. There's a bit of history for you. We hope that last article made you smile and we're going to finish there. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Pat and Graham and myself Val, it's goodbye. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.